hills and vales and glens and all oh, these yeah, other fucking the, the crosswords, the AARP crossword, the AARP crossword. Uh, strikingly, has a lot of very antiquated words in it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same crossword every every day, right? It's just well, they're in different orders. Yeah, I was like shocked. So before we were recording, I was doing the crossword in the beep beep Discord and. Um, we were noticing me and the beepers that, uh, the Saturday and Sunday crossword shared maybe 15 to 20% of their clues and answers between one another, uh, either completely verbatim or sorry, my cats are fighting a few moments later No, but I've been doing, I've been doing the dictionary.com daily crossword and it just wasn't enough for me. So I tried to branch out to the AARP crossword, huge mistake, massive you, mistake. Yeah. I've tried a lot of the like free ones where there's like, here's infinite free crossword puzzles. And it's like, it's because this is out of a bank of like 500 clues. Yeah. Total for and all that's of what, the puzzles. And they're just generated. And yeah. that's what it seems like the AARP one is that way, but the dictionary.com one, it, <laughs> it credits the authors at the bottom of each puzzle and it uses real names. So, oh, so I can go and harass the bad puzzle makers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's the important part. What makes you think people know so much about poplar trees in particular? <laughs> Janice or whoever. Popular. Yeah, they're so fucking popular. All right, on that note. <laughs> Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody. The greatest pod, the greatest crossword puzzle solving podcast of all time. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, union struggles really are like a crossword in that they're um, they're not. Uh, we're gonna start. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. If you do, um, if you don't, that's okay. We really appreciate your listenership anyway. Don't forget to get in the Discord so you can see all the memes from the meme review. And if you've left us any five star reviews, thank you so much. We hope that they help. Um, we're gonna start by following up with. Paizo, which is a tabletop gaming company that uh, my other hosts talked about while I was out an episode with COVID, and it looks like they voluntarily recognized their employee union, so that's pretty fucking good news. And, I mean, what you would hope to see from a, a company that's already basically just like, this is do-it-yourself Dungeons & Dragons, so... Yeah, like... We were definitely uh, kind of pessimistic on this one at uh, last week's episode, and this is de uh, the the rare occasion I would say where we're very happy to have been completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they just rolled a critical success. I guess you know. Yeah, that's right. A nat twenty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I think maybe when you're a company like Paizo, there's kind of an incentive to not just you know, in terms of the way your product is made, but in the terms of the way you handle your business, kind of distance yourself from giant hulking monoliths of gaming like Wizards of the Coast and Blizzard Activision and shit like that. Yeah. So I, I also think that it could have to do with like the the kind of conditions on the ground. They they have thirty employees. And mm -hmm. so if say like 10 or 15 of those p employees are very openly pro-union and like kind of militant on the shop floor or in chats like that could really like make them think 
uh, this can either be a super fight or we can just kind of start working on this thing and not have not drag everybody through the mud. It could be just like a cutting your losses kind of situation. Yeah, hard to say what the motivation of the uh, management here will be, but uh, they did release a statement that says uh, Jeff Alvarez, president of Paizo, released a statement where he says, we look forward to working with the union to continue and expand our efforts to make Paizo a better place to work and to ensure that Pathfinder and Starfinder products continue to exceed gamer expectations for many years to come, which is kind of boilerplate stuff, but it's pretty reassuring. It's better boilerplate stuff than you expect to see. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously, you know, the elect, the like recognition of the union is just one step in the fight. Like the workers will now have to go forward with the actual negotiation process. Like the company continued in a statement where they said the next steps will involve the United Paizo workers union, electing their bargaining representatives, and then meeting with Paizo management to negotiate terms for a collective bargaining agreement. We expect this process to take some time, but we are committed to the effort and hope to settle a contract in due course until an agreement is reached. The Paizo staff continues to focus on creating amazing pathfinder and Starfinder products. And so like, obviously this is great. Like, I I don't want to undermine this being a very good thing because we've covered so many stories where even just getting to that recognition point is such an incredibly difficult fight. So this is obviously a great thing to see, but it does underline like the importance of, you know, why you need a union to not just be the whole, we come around when a contract is up. It's like, we, we're going to have to follow this to see how, you know, they're able to keep engagement up, how the negotiations go, whether they're actually able to get management to, you know, take worker input on how the business should be run or whether uh, after an initial, you know, movement to to recognize the union, they then, you know, push back real hard on everything during the negotiation. So we'll have to follow that. But this is obviously a fantastic first step. Or who knows, they'll maybe add an entire chapter on labor struggle to the new Pathfinder book. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that would be sick. <laughs> I mean, what, there's some, I don't remember the quote um, word for word, but there's some famous Gary Gygax quote about Dungeons and Dragons being like the player's game and that the players should make the game into whatever they need it to be to have fun and to explore the worlds that they want to explore. And I know Pathfinder isn't explicitly Dungeons and Dragons, but let's be real. Yeah, it is. It's pretty much, it's pretty much a Rizzo it, it, D&D ripoff. Yeah. And um, D- so, do I mean, not sue look, me. <laughs> we need to take that. We need to take that energy and be like, okay, well, a workplace is a lot like a campaign and the workers in the workplace are a lot like the players in a campaign. So they should go and make the, the workplace their own. And make it serve their interests. And I, it's just really cool to see that this is one of those places where that seems to be kind of happening. Well, and there's also the, uh, you know, the big clear connection, which is that, I mean, what does every adventuring party in any role-playing game usually have to do before they can get to whatever, you know, the treasure or the ultimate goal that they're, that they're going after is? They have to beat a boss. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, the, the parallels here are just, you know... They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny that uh, bosses in video games and in gaming culture in general are called bosses and not like generals or lieutenants or lords or anything. Like, as soon as it came around, they were like, 
this is a lot like my boss. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. horrible ogre or whatever I have to fight. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I have heard from people when they saw this, they were there was a mixed response of, oh, shit, now I have to play Pathfinder or oh, that's too bad. I'm still never going to play Pathfinder. But, you know, either way. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, you know, with that kind of lighthearted start, we're gonna move <laughs> directly to we're, the oh darkness. God. Yeah, we're we're just gonna we're just gonna go straight to the complete opposite side of the coin tonally I, here. I mean, this is the this is the news item that you have to talk about, even if yeah. you're not necessarily a labor show. Of course, we're talking about the cinematographer Helena Hutchins, who was shot on set on the set of Rust. By Alec Baldwin um, with a prop gun that was supposed to be firing blanks. And I don't know if it was or wasn't, but even a gun firing blanks can still be very dangerous. Um, and uh, this is super serious. And I know that like it's really easy to meme about because Alec Baldwin is one of the most like roastable figures in American media. But like I have been having a bit of a tough time dealing with people's flippancy on, on this issue in particular mm-hmm. just because like i don't know if it's just me and like my position is like a huge fucking media nerd and everything but like this this gets deeply under my skin this is like emblematic of so many of the problems and of course we're going to be highlighting the union related issues that were on set uh not least of yeah. which which is that there were no union uh prop workers on the call sheet at all at the time that this uh, fatal accident right. took place. Well, and it's reported that um, Alec was told uh, that the gun was cold, uh, called a cold gun, which is actually something without any ammunition in it at all. Right. Um, I was just reading a new kind of report that came out today, which was a little bit more information <laughs> on it, where he where or where it's kind of explained that he was practicing for a scene and was handed a gun that he was told was basically entirely unloaded, although uh, he did not check it. It was technically checked twice. It was checked first by the, um, I think, the the armorer and then the prop manager. Um, and both times, uh, I guess, it was just incorrectly checked because it was reported as a cold gun. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was originally Baldwin's stunt double, I believe, who fired two live rounds. Um, or more dangerous blanks on the set, and then it was noticed by the staff. And prior, only six hours prior to the following um, fatal accident on set, uh, only six hours prior to that, I believe six camera workers had walked off set in protest of the rushed production, the dangerous working conditions, and management's total unwillingness to address any kind of safety concerns and it's been talked about a few times but this was meant to be like a low budget rush production for streaming which is becoming a much more popular style of developing media and it seems like the insistence that it be like a quick and fast and dirty production is what caused this uh, horrible accident well, and, and that's one of the things that i think has frustrated me a little bit about some of the coverage of this is that a lot of it, not all of it, I have seen. There's been some good stuff. Like um, Alex Press uh, wrote a really good piece uh, over at Jacobin on this, just like I think yesterday. Um, but a lot of the coverage about this has centered on like, 
oh, well, what about the dangerous aspects of using guns in film? And, and like, look, within, a, a, within the film industry, that is certainly a discussion that should be had. But, like, the broader things that we should be talking about with this, not that, you know, the handling of gun safety isn't important. It is. But the reason why this issue came up and why this all happened relates back to all of the complaints that IATSE members were putting forward in mm-hmm. authorizing their strike that was, you know, then pushed off by this, this tentative agreement that, that is being hashed out. Like there's almost every aspect of, of that folks were complaining about the, the, the issues that they run into, like what you were saying with the, the standards that have been used for streaming services mm-hmm. and quote unquote new media and the corners that are allowed to be cut based on their current contract. And that, isn't really fully addressed with the information that we have in in the new tentative agreement. And all of that is what led to this situation because they mentioned on in, in one of the pieces on here, there was a quote in here. They said, quote, the producers on that movie are treating the local crew like dog shit, wrote Lane Looper, a, a camera operator on rust, adding that some crew members had not received proper paychecks and were fighting for a place to stay closer to the set. One member wrote Looper uh, had slept in his car because production wouldn't give him a place to stay and was quote, too tired to, to drive the hour home. That's right. And then quote, nobody on any production should have to sleep in the cold, in their car at base camp to not die driving home, which is all from, you know, somebody who was working on that set and all of these issues, like the fact that there wasn't an IATSE union prop master to actually follow the you know union safety procedures for handling firearms on mm-hmm. a set to the fact that there was non-union crew all over the set yeah it all goes back to the fact that the union had been for years and and been operating under a contract that said that people working on certain film sets are not entitled to a living wage. They're not entitled to the amount of rest that you need to do any job that they're not entire entitled to, you know, any of the, the basics necessary to make a safe, safe set possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like this is fundamentally a workplace safety issue. And, and, and some places have characterized it that way, but a lot has been focused on, you know, like, Oh, well, should we be not using prop guns at all and just be using CGI? And it's like, okay, sure. That's, that's an important thing for internal, you know, discussion within the film industry. But the broader conversation has to go back to the IATSE contract. It's like, this is a direct result of cost cutting by producers. And that's the, the thing that people should be criticizing Alec Baldwin right. for on this. Well, and yeah. that, that's exactly right. Cause it's not a new observation there. I'm, there's multiple vi- viral tweets about this, but Alec Baldwin, the actor who pulled the trigger is not a uh, 1000th as culpable as Alec Baldwin, the producer on the show exactly. who did not respond to, the demands of the union employees who did not take care of safety on set who cut corners at every turn 200 percent that uh, that's the that is the main point i think that mm-hmm. ever, that we should really be getting to yes but i i did want to um uh, not to harp on on gun safety but there was a an alleged report though it is through from a, a tmz reporter that there was actually sh- like range style shooting possibly happening on on the set and the ammunition could have been mixed between live and blank ammunition that's not confirmed um so i'll we'll, i'll issue a correction if that's not true but like that well that, i mean that, it, 
it, you know, it's it, it's a bad implication that they're that the person who is supposed to be doing prop safety and things like should have been either better trained or or something important like that as well. You know, there are I mean, and, there are lots of factors. And the thing is, is like if I'm not mistaken, the show is supposed to be some form of western, so you know it's going to feature firearms quite heavily, and there's probably going to be a lot of shuffling around of prop guns and real guns and ammo and you know this and that. And if you don't have somebody like a union professional who is there and who feels secure in their position that they and, and secure in their ability, uh, you know, facilitated by the other union members on staff to make sure that there is a safe and well-documented and, and rigorous environment of gun safety on set, then you are, I mean, it's almost uh, unavoidable that you're going to run into yeah. um, firearm accidents like this. Because it can even happen without live ammunition anywhere around there because there can be minor obstructions that come from uncleaned weapons and, and mm-hmm. other sorts of, of things that prop masters and, and armorers are supposed to be taking care of. Yeah, and, and there was a quote from another crew member who who had worked on the the set and then you know quit after all these problems who'd said quote there were no safety meetings there was no assurance that it wouldn't happen again all they wanted to do was rush 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 and that that gets right to the like this is this is basically the same functionally the same type of workplace accident related to speed up and labor intensification that We've seen in all sorts of other industries, like when we see people who lose limbs or get killed in the meatpacking industry or yeah. those or the, the folks that were killed when there was that liquid nitrogen uh, leak. Or just, uh, you know, trams and jitneys in Amazon yes. warehouses wounding elderly, you know, workers and college students or coders. Uh, working in the video game industry who are being pushed to work 20 hour days during crunch time and have to choose between sleeping at their desk or potentially driving home and getting into a fatal accident because they're so fucking tired. Yeah, it's it's ultimately an economic calculation where because mm-hmm. of the conditions of labor and lack of protections for labor and lack of any consequence for doing anything to workers that it's, it's an, it's a simple economic calculation for these places for these, you know, production companies, or in the case of any other industry to say, how much does it cost me to implement the appropriate safety measures? And how much will it cost me if something goes wrong? And if the latter is cheaper, they're going to cut the corners every time. And that's why Mm -hmm. we have to have strong unions that actually, that don't, you know, make concessionary contracts that don't like try to tell you that there can be uh, a coexistence of interest between labor and capital, but to go up there and say, no, there is an absolute minimum by which we can make this shit safe. And if you're not going to provide that, then we're not going to fucking work we're going to shut down your uh, workplaces. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we can take that kind of thing of the contradiction between labor and capital right into our next story where we t- look at uh, fascists attacking uh, party headquarters in Italy. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see the way that unions are understood politically by like the actual active political forces operating in a country, look no further than Italy right now. Because the uh, CGIL, the Confederazione Generale Italiana de Lavoro, had their uh, headquarters invaded and trashed by a rising uh, fascist party in Italy called Forza Nuova. Yeah, this is basically Forza Nuova is the latest in a string of Italian neo-fascist groups because like technically 
neo-fascist groups are illegal in Italy, but they just, when one gets banned, they make a new name and, you know, they come up with some new bullshit to claim that's not what they are. But, uh, you see this, you know, you see the same fascist politics from them every time. And this group that led this attack on the union hall, was l- basically latching onto a phenomenon we've seen all over it's really the imperial core countries most of all but also other other places around the world which is attempting to use resistance to government covid measures as a gateway via which to indoctrinate folks with far right reactionary and ultimately fascist Ideas like we've seen this obviously all over the U.S. We uh, there was a specific example in here that's mentioned from Australia that we'll talk about in a minute. But like this, this happening in Italy also, you know, unavoidably carries a lot of historical uh, resonance with it because it was by leading attacks against the very powerful left wing unions that in the twenties, like was a big part of the original rise of the Italian fascist party, you know, that led to them taking over and the conditions are very different now, but the, the far right in Europe has been a steadily growing force for decades at this Mm -hmm. point, like uh, to the point where some of the quote unquote centrist parties in, in, in Europe are kind of indistinguishable from maybe what 20 years would have been called far right. And so this was this specific attack all came out about on October 9th when there was a big rally uh, against this new COVID vaccine pass program called Green Pass. Basically, you've you've seen these sorts of things uh, where it's like you have to show your your proof of vaccination or a negative test to, you know, eat indoors or whatever. Mm -hmm. I also want to point out that Green Pass is not a translation. It is literally called Green Pass. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very weird. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah. So these folks like they were, you know, there was a there was this like crowd of I believe it was a few thousand people who were protesting against that, that these fascist groups led by Forza Nuova basically took that movement and said, Hey, and you know who else is a problem? The unions. Yeah. And so they, they broke into the headquarters of the CGIL smashed up a ton of their offices and, and basically were, uh, mostly allowed to leave without being harassed. There was a, a few arrests, um, uh, let's see, I said like following the incident, there was 12 arrests, including top leaders of Forza Nuova. Uh, but the current government of Italy is a kind of a mishmash alliance of a whole bunch of parties, primarily center center, right um, leaning ones. So there's been a variety of responses. However, one thing that was good to see though, was that there was a, a, a very energetic mass response to this directly after the attack. There was a quote from the leader of the CGIL Maurizio Landini, who said, Quote, the assault on CGIL's national headquarters is an act of fascist thuggery, an attack on democracy, and on the world of work. No one should think that they can return our country to its fascist past. And he specifically compared it to the attack on the same union's union headquarters a right. hundred years ago. Well, and Italy's been on the front lines of, of that fight, not just, you know, during and in the immediate post World War II mm-hmm. period, but also during the 60s and 70s, the U.S. was running uh, 
basically a uh, secret stay behind terrorism campaign against mm-hmm. most of the Italian populace, uh, largely directed at the the Italian left. Um, I'm not going to, maybe I, at some point I'll do an entire episode on Operation Gladio, but uh, there's plenty of stuff <laughs> if you want to look that up. But like the, just to say that it's like, it, it's not like fascism was defeated in 1945 and it went away and it's just coming back now. It's like these, the fascist currents within Italy were never completely dealt with. The U.S. fostered tons of them mm-hmm. for decades afterwards and has been providing funding, weapons, and training to those groups there as a bulwark against what it saw as, you know, Soviet expansionism into Italy. Yeah. Well, it's all <laughs> American decades. it's all American influence, right? Because the whole right. and you can even just see this in a very surface level cultural way, what are these fascist groups doing? They're basically getting advertising advice. Oh, don't call yourself this, call yourself that. Oh, don't you're you're not a fascist, you're a western chauvinist. You're not a right. a racist, you're a race realist. And like it's all rebranding, it's all fucking madmen shit. Uh, and you know, you see that right up to the present day, like what you were saying, like, uh, Forza Nuova is his just a brand new name for a very, very old thing yeah. in Italy. And so, uh, the one week after the attack, there was a big rally in Rome called by the CGIL for, you know, its members, other workers mm-hmm. in defense of the trade union movement and, and with the slogan, never again, fascism. And there were the reports I was reading was that they had well over a hundred thousand people rallying in Rome in support of that. Um, they had a, a, a quote in here that from the head of uh, one of the other largest trade unions, the CISL, um, Luigi Sbarra, who said that basically that there was very little discussion within their union afterwards on what to do. He said, quote, the, the, well, said that the attack against the unions, quote, made the only choice to be here united against all types of fascism end quote. And so there was a huge popular upswell of support for the CGIL. And there's now been discussions within both houses of parliament in Italy to ban, um, Forza Nuova, make it an illegal party, dissolve it as well as, you know, prosecute the people that, that led the attack. Uh, I have been so, but that action actually has to be formally taken by the executive which is like I was saying, this big, broad coalition. So it's unclear on whether that will happen. But even if it does, I think it's pretty unlikely that that's just banning this one small fascist party is going to do it like that by itself. Isn't going to get rid of that movement. Like it's right. That fascism comes from the contradictions of capitalism. And if you're not dealing with those, like it's going to keep coming around. Right. Exactly. Glad that glad that Luigi is out here fighting, fighting against fascists. (laughs) Yeah, That's well, right. I mean, speaking of uh, rebranding and American involvement in other countries, yep. I think this is a good point to start talking about South Korea, uh, one of the only... <laughs> I was going to say one of the only countries yeah. we've ever partitioned, <laughs> but then I'm thinking about like Germany, <laughs> Vietnam. Like, there, there is a many. pretty good list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, hundreds of thousands of workers in South Korea on October 20th. Um, the best estimate that it looks like we could find was 80 to 130,000 from across construction, transportation, service, and other sectors all walked off their jobs in a one-day general strike, which is pretty cool. Uh, it will be followed by mass demonstrations in urban centers and rural farmlands, culminating in a national all-people's mobilization in January 2022. So what is a, a national all-people's mobilization? That sounds like a really interesting way to say general strike. 
<laughs> yeah. So this is all coming out of an article from, uh, mostly from an article from Truth Out, and then also with some stuff from a Liberation News piece covering mm-hmm. this protest. Um, but this was a this Truth Out article was from members of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, which is the biggest labor organization in Korea. And and basically, what this strike is is about is the incredibly exploitative conditions across all industries in South Korea. Uh, basically just th- this is a strike against the, the fundamental contradictions of the way that y- decades of first U S controlled military dictatorship followed by several decades of U S controlled neoliberal bourgeois democracy has resulted in the workforce in Korea being saddled with a a lack of access to stable permanent jobs that actually provide some job security for people b a lack of wages and c b then being saddled with some of the highest levels of debt in the world right like cuz i i think there's this there's this picture that people get sometimes from our, the, the the us media that because of the attempt to portray you know south korea good korea north korea bad korea like like that that sort of thing and I mean, people more recently might be aware of the problems from things like the popularity of media items like Parasite and and Mm -hmm. Squid Game more recently. But like these are very real, like really harsh working conditions that the workers in in South Korea are facing that led to this, you know, big upswell of of protest. Yeah, I think that we can actually I I wanted to talk a little bit about the the history because the article goes kind of deep into the history of the economic development of the country, especially at the end of the 90s when there was an economic downturn or was maybe the beginning of the 90s. Um, but where then they had to go to the IMF and the IMF re- makes them uh, make a bunch of industries private and just like a real classic story of of how the um the you know CIA style organizations have basically done neoliberalism and and for all real purposes a, a form of fascism in their in this country, but um, the numbers themselves I think uh, speak pretty well when it comes to uh, this. So I'm gonna kind of quote here uh in south korea about two thousand people are killed in industrial accidents every year over the past four or in i'm sorry i'm going to start that over in south korea about two thousand people are killed in industrial accidents every year over the past four years the number of regular workers has decreased by about a quarter million so 240,000, and the number of precarious workers has increased by just short of a million people yeah, sorry, just short of a million people, uh, 950,000. And uh, just for a little context there, the population in South Korea is about 51 million people. So that is a significant percentage of the population that has been shifted from regular work to what the uh, more precarious work or what they're calling in these uh, this strike irregular work. Yeah, like, I think like everybody, like, you know, it's impossible to to miss the 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 broad trend of the rise of the gig economy and even just like quote unquote gigification of mm-hmm. of previously secured jobs but even with the level that we see that here in the US i was shocked by some of the numbers they had in there for for south korea like specifically they mentioned that over 40% of south korea's workforce participates in in irregular work which can is gig can either be you know gig work or or petty production outside of the the traditional stable production site 
and that's an like almost half of all workers are are forced to to participate in this irregular labor sector just due to the you know inav- unavailability of stable jobs because mm-hmm. of the broader trend of you know trying to minimize absolutely the number of workers who actually have job security and decent benefits and anything above a starvation wage and the the like i guess you could sort of view this as like sort of the the proletarianization of the 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 quote new petty bourgeoisie as mm-hmm. as, as nikos polansis would call them the the salaried workers your your what what might be called in the US the professional <laughs> managerial class or right. the salary men well um, i mean it's all the future it- it's all the future of what's happening here, right? Like, I don't think it's unfair to say that the U.S. government, even more than their, like, extremely close financial ties to somewhere like Japan, which is usually what you see touted as, like, having all of the futuristic things uh, and being, you know, dystopian or utopian or whatever spin you want to put on it. South Korea is, like, the the golden example of a place where U.S. firm and governmental involvement is so heavily tied into just their existence as a state in the first place um that the u.s uses them as like a laboratory in many ways for like what they might want to implement over here in the united states and this is not uncommon that basically neo-colonial or still outright colonial um holdings or influence are used like that like a lot of island nations have also seen the extreme rise of gigification um yeah, and and one other thing though that I think was interesting that that was pointed out in in one of these articles about the fact that before the neoliberal era in in South Korea there was actually quite a bit of nationalized industry mm-hmm. under the military dictatorship because the United States specifically directed their leadership to run protectionist policies to do some limited central planning because with the express purpose of of trying to compete with the growth rates that the DPRK was seeing in the immediate decades following the Korean War and so with an, a complete clear-eyed understanding that this the free trade model was not going to work like for a, <laughs> a, a small country like like South Korea and that the only way they could quickly develop was with like basically the the central planning of a lot of their the commanding heights of their economy and mm-hmm. it was only when basically when you saw the the threat of socialist the socialist bloc more broadly like lessen quite a bit with the overthrow of the soviet union that then the us was like okay we don't have to we don't have to do this whole dog and pony show about pretending that like like propping them up by letting them have be- somewhat better policies we'll just let like privatize everything right well and like we we still plan their economy to this day just by setting the stage for certain actors to do certain things instead of openly saying like please you know allocate this many materials to this location right but the other thing that's I, i do think that this story also interestingly highlights is the problem of nationalization without the seizure of state power Mm -hmm. by the workers. Because like, for instance, like the UK government used to, you know, control their, their railway system. And there's constant calls for them to renationalize the railway system. That does not make, nor would it make the UK a socialist country in the same way. The fact that like the, the coal industry in, in Korea is largely nationalized. That does not make that a socialist industry because it's being run, you know, for like 
the benefit functionally of the people that like the the countries that that are being exported to via this like essentially it's because it's part of the neo-colonial u.s operation of the korean economy in order to benefit them by producing cheaper raw materials and we get into like what i mean specifically by that there was a quote in here from a korean coal miner who said who said, quote, the government reduced the labor force by half, so our unit now has to do the job of two units. So everyone is ill. There's no one here who is not sick. Our wages need to increase, but have stayed the same. We work the same as regular workers, but we don't even get half the pay. Yeah, I I mean, like, the there is no one who is not sick, I think, should be a really important line there. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Korean War. I mean, I, it could even be rephrased as the genocide known as the Korean War, and this right. is a continuation of that process. This is a this is a, still a genocide of the workers and the working class. Well, and it really just highlights the fact that, like, you know, all economies are planned. It's it's a question of by who. Like, you can have a socialist planned economy where, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat or whatever plans the economy, or you can have fascism where the state and the large corporations don't pretend to be separate from each other or you can have capitalism where they do pretend to be separate from each other yeah uh, well it's 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 what are you planning the economy to do right are you planning it for need or are you planning it for the profit of a small class so, right um but that that actually comes to like one of the things that's frustrating i think about a lot of the coverage that i saw about this strike because the truth out piece which is by somebody from the the korean confederation trade unions was good, really good and this liberation news piece was good Almost everything else that I saw was like, look, they did a protest where people dressed up like Squid Game. Oh my God. And that's God. it. That's like all they talked about was was pictures of that. There was nothing about the demands, which were, which well, I'm just going to get to in a sec, were quite aggressive and like pretty like advanced radical stuff that like, you know, while staying within the bounds of basically like social democratic demands. Uh, where they had their, the demands from this, these strikers, again, hundreds of thousands of people was their, their big ones were abolish irregular work and extend labor protections to all workers, give workers power and economic restructuring decisions during time of crisis and nationalize key industries and socialize basic services like education and housing. And that's way more than you see demanded in so many other labor struggles. And the fact that they were able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of people to do what they knew in advance, and we'll get to this in a sec, was going to be ruled an illegal demonstration. Mm -hmm. That tells you, you know, like, I think there's a reason we haven't been hearing much about the South Korean labor struggles is because they're clearly more advanced than, you know, you would think from not hearing about it. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I'm always saying is like, people are like, oh, we don't really have class struggle in the united states and it's like you can you can import the better class struggle happening elsewhere into the united states and you see the uaw and the usw joining a delegation to the korean embassy in dc in solidarity with the strike that's exactly what you should be fucking doing yeah uh because and and just you know fucking publicizing that these strikes happen and do work and can be more radical elsewhere in the world because that gets you know american workers fucking brains moving it starts turning gears yeah and and there's already been uh there actually was preemptive repressive measures a a little bit like how the police in india were arresting organizers in advance of the general strike there Uh, a few weeks ago the president of the kctu was along with at least 30 other union organizers were jailed in advance of this 
demonstration. <laughs> and their president, uh, Yang Kyung-soo, is the 13th president in a row of the KCTU to be jailed, which should be an absolute fucking badge of honor for yeah. any like union. Like that is a great record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's uh, pretty I, true. I, I have a, um, a step family member who was, uh, he's a liberal. He's not like super politically great or anything, but he was jailed by Franco for smuggling <laughs> oh, educational damn. material into Spain. And he wears that shit like a badge of honor. Hell so, yeah. So yeah, that's badass to be the 13th president in a row. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is under the like president, uh, Moon Jae outgo soon to be uh, outgoing president Moon Jae in who has been, that has done some good stuff with regards to relations between South Korea and the DPRK, but is continuing a long line of, 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 well, I guess over the past couple of decades of Korean presidents who have had no problem continuing to use the national security law, which was written basically during the years of the dictatorship to crack down against any sort of labor dissent. And in this case, using the the covid pandemic as an excuse saying hey look we have restrictions on how many people can gather because of how bad covid is and so uh you can't be having these these labor demonstrations even when all of you are wearing masks and taking all of the precautions and we know that you know these sorts of outdoor gatherings are not the primary sorts of spread yeah i mean well it's just classic like if you try to stand up for any kind of rights they're like wow this is not covid safe but like if you want to have right. uh if you want to you know drink a, a a red bull and vodka in the middle of a crowded bar they're like that's absolutely a fucking okay my friend like <laughs> right yeah, yeah well, <laughs> true, and, true and, bullshit. and we can just compare the two stories i know it's two different countries but mm -hmm. like did anything stop that big fascist anti-vax protest from taking place in advance no mm -mm. like because the repressive apparatus is on the same side as those people, even if they do find them a bit disruptive and a bit loud from time to time. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's the, it is the, you know, actual workers' rights protests, which are pretty much always, every time I've seen them, has people taking COVID precautions and actually trying to keep their fellow, uh, you know, protesters and demonstrators safe. Those are the ones that tend to see, you know, the most vicious crackdown from the state, which just, you know, exposes that, like, they're not doing that shit because they actually care about COVID. They're just using it as an excuse. Yeah. Right. I mean, classic. That's we've been reporting. I feel like if you've been listening for a while, none of this is <laughs> yeah. new to you. Yeah. For our last story this week, we've got uh, yet another potential big strike to may that, that may soon be joining Striketober, which rolls on with we've got 36,000 members of the Alliance of Healthcare Unions. Uh, this is specifically workers at Kaiser Permanente, which is a gigantic healthcare company, uh, have authorized a strike uh, over the lack of good bargaining from Kaiser Permanente for a new contract. So we could have, uh, you know, 36,000 at this point and potentially over 50,000 Kaiser employees walking onto the picket line in, in the next coming couple of weeks if they don't get a, a better contract coming from Kaiser. Yeah, those are pretty big numbers considering whether the John Deere strike was the largest one this year at about 10,000 workers, right? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is primarily spurred on by Kaiser Permanente's attempt to switch to a two-tiered employment system. I mean, where have we seen that? Hey, look at that. Before, uh, where all new hires would receive less compensation and worse benefits than current employees. The company made over $6 billion last year, and they're claiming that the proposed lower wages are needed to cut costs for patients. They're also making... The truly deranged claim that their employees are overpaid by 26% on average. And in some cases, my favorite weasel words, in some cases, 38% quote above market levels, which let's be real levels are just numbers you can pull out of your ass. Well, I mean, (laughs) if they, well, they probably do have a good survey of what wages are considering they have, you know, a pretty strong uh, sway in the particular healthcare market. But I mean, if they are just like, averaging all the wages and then picks the middle one and says everybody should get paid this lower wage and all these people who are getting paid more are doing a bad thing like that's what they're trying to say they're using that as an excuse like to essentially not only say that they need to have you know a two-tiered contact track system which is bad enough in and of itself we've seen what that leads to and that's why you know all of these big fights have been to push back against the the failures of those sorts of contracts but in addition, they're basically saying, because you're overpaid, we're going to keep the people that are on the better tier on there, but we're only going to give you a 1% raise, which again, as we mentioned on previous episodes, is a wage cut. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. And, and it's to the point where if this new two-tiered contract was implemented and they started hiring uh, nurses and other and other healthcare workers to these positions in this new second shitty tier you would now have new hires making less money than workers at McDonald's or or Amazon warehouses which again is not to say that those workers don't deserve good wages they absolutely do and that's why we've seen you know pushes at we've seen walkouts at McDonald's we've seen pushes for unionization at Amazon warehouses But just as a reference point for these people saying that Kaiser saying that the workers are overpaid. And so we need to put in a new tier so that we're essentially paying them minimum wage, because that's the realm that you're looking into with this sort of thing that, that you think that you should be paying people starvation wages, because that's what they mean when they say overpaid, when they say overpaid, they don't mean we can't afford to pay this. What they mean is that we've calculated the bare minimum that you need to be able to feed yourself and reproduce your labor. And we're paying you more than that. And that really bothers our shareholders. Right. (laughs) But yeah. um, Classic. Thankfully though, you know, the, the union, which is, you it's it, that's one of the things that's a little interesting about this is you've got a whole bunch of different unions like unite here ufcw uh you like the steel workers a whole bunch of different unions has locals mm-hmm. that all work for kaiser and that's why they have this you know confederate basically a confederation the, the alliance of of healthcare workers so you could end up having rep <laughs> like locals from almost all of the big unions in the United States, potentially striking at once uh, to 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 prevent this sort of a new shitty two tier contract if this goes forward. And this isn't like it's thirty six thousand people voted to authorize a strike across all these unions, and with a lot of of you know energy and enthusiasm behind this, because like three of the biggest ones uh, that voted last week to authorize a strike 
had over 95% of their membership vote in favor of a strike. And there's also, that's the other thing. We're at 36,000 eligible to strike as of when I wrote the notes. <laughs> right. Uh, that number is actually probably higher now. I haven't checked today, but there are like thousands more workers over the, the you know, next week or so that have been voting on whether or not to authorize one. So this, like, you know, this is shaping up to be a big fight. And, and this could be, if the IATSE strike does end up not going through, they do, and if they do end up accepting the tentative agreement, this could end up being the biggest U.S. strike of the year. Right. Yeah. Well, well and, and this has I potential mean, I almost, to. I almost wonder, like, who's not authoring authorizing strikes because it seems like the numbers are pretty high right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this this sure. even more than the IATSE strike seems like it has the capacity to snowball, right? Because of for the sure. way that all of these unions are interlinked, you start seeing solidarity strikes, or you start seeing um, more labor action further down the supply chain or further up the supply chain from wherever these individual unions are working for the I mean I got to imagine the steel workers are like building buildings for these right. people and stuff so like it's totally vertically integrated and it's kind of interesting and maybe a little poetic that something big enough and relying on enough union labor to cause this kind of incident uh in the United States would have to be a healthcare company what else could it be <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. absolutely yeah, absolutely well it is now 8.37, and you know what that means. That's right. It's time to read the meme review. 420 <laughs> times 2 plus 7. That's what that is, right? Let's flip directly <laughs> to the 10 principles of economics. It's see, we see here an image of... <laughs> I'm just doing a reference to uh, to a SpongeBob meme that my partner oh, yeah, yeah. sent <laughs> this is a This is a fucking welcome to my meme page meme, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah, it sure is. it is. <laughs> they Apparently they had been offline for a little bit and this was one of the, the recent ones that they, they put together. <laughs> this one is, it, I just love, this is a fucking banger meme because it is a very funny view of capitalism. <laughs> so you've got, you, you've got here, it's a list. It's the 10 principles of economics and you've got like a picture of basically society.jpg. Yeah. It almost uh, kind of looks like a, a Bosch excerpt, yeah, but it's not quite it surreal enough. Yeah. And so you've got number one, people would rather die than give you one red cent. <laughs> number two, the only thing countries should trade are diseases and bombs. <laughs> number three, never buy anything. Someone wants to sell. If someone is selling something, that means they're trying to get rid of it. Almost certainly it is broken. That's correct. That's always true. <laughs> number four, never sell anything. Someone wants to buy. If they want to buy it, it means you are selling your broken item for too cheap. They are trying to make a fool out of you. <laughs> also correct. <laughs> and then the next two very much interlinked number five, an economy can be clogged like a toilet. Number six, which we're seeing right now, by the way, with the supply chain problems, mm. <laughs> of which an economy can be blown up like a building. Yeah, that's more that's more like housing crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then number seven this is the best one. Where, wherever supply and demand are meeting, insert yourself firmly between them and tell lies about each other. <laughs> that's just how it works. 
That's how you make money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's honestly, that's essentially how like when you hear somebody who's like, oh, what do you do? I'm in uh, imports and exports. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, that's what that person does. This is when uh, <laughs> it's like when you get a, a text from your weed dealer and he's like, um, well, actually, it's been really hard to find recently. So it's going to be, you know, extra, you know, five, six bucks per gram for the next few weeks. It's like he's lying to you. <laughs> yeah. And it's like numbers. Number Numbers eight and nine, I think, are very important. I wish crypto people would learn these lessons. Yeah. <laughs> Number eight, invest in the market and you will never see your money again. That's true. <laughs> and number nine, but invest in bedtime and you will never be a sleepyhead. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty hard to argue with that one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last principle of it's economics, number 10, remember the righteous man is worth billions of dollars to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and, I love this. I mean, honestly, I feel like these are the lessons you very much could learn about what economics is just by absorbing American media. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this this is what's great about Welcome to My Meme Page is that they make memes that don't say the prevailing wisdom. They describe the prevailing functional attitude, like the, the implicit mm, yeah. attitude of things, and they just lay it out there. It's like a much more, I don't know, socially worthwhile version of those aliens comics where they're like, I will now oh. pet the domesticated feline or whatever yeah. fucking kind of weird simplification. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Those comics that are like, isn't, isn't human society weird? Yeah. <laughs> what if we used aliens as a way to interrogate that? <laughs> yeah. What if we used dead labor as a way to interrogate that? <laughs> yeah, right into the second meme of the meme review where we have a, a photo of a Maru-style cat, Maru being mm -hmm. my cat. This is That's a black right. cat, a black with cat. a uh, yeah, with a little like vampire cape and the cat's teeth looking very vampiric. You mm -hmm. know, uh, I love it. And then it's just a a, a quote here: uh, "Capital is dead labor. That vampire like only lives by." Oh, I I I did my my uh, my pausing wrong. It's ca capital is dead labor. That vampire like only lives by sucking living labor. Karl Marx. Hell yeah. And uh, if anybody is like gearing up for, I don't know what they call it, spooky season, Halloween, whatever, and you're like, how do I make this more Marxist? There's a really great episode of Acid Horizon where they had John the Lit Crit guy on talking about um, gothic Marxism and like how Marx was kind of obsessed with horror stories of his time and how you can see it in his writing. It's pretty cool. Actually, I'm not a big horror guy or anything, but it's an interesting linkage. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of, of horror, uh, we're going to, we're going to do a little, uh, movie review, I guess we're doing, we're doing, <laughs> I haven't seen that uh, yeah. this was in a meme review yet. <laughs> I didn't scroll this far down earlier. The, this is just a, a, a movie poster, and uh, I think the text on here is at the top. There's a bunch of little small actor names, blah, 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 blah. There's photos of all of the characters in the movie, and the, the movie is called What Are You Doing in My Swamp? And all of the characters are fucking Shrek. Fuck yeah. <laughs> this is a very important meme that, to be frank, has nothing to do whatsoever with workers or strikes or anything, except for the fact that combining the comedic potential of the word dune also being <laughs> yeah. doing yeah with shrek memes i mean really just you, the best one. you found meme Nirvana. it works so well especially because mike myers scottish voice which is what he does for shrek 
makes doing and dune completely indistinguishable from one another. What are you doing in my swamp? Like that's incredible. It's so much better than the weak ass. Like, yeah, dune your mom. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, tweet, I, a banger tweet, Mr. Land, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate there was, there was one union's Twitter account that I saw <coughs> that was like, yeah, we like dune dune some organizing. All right. Yeah. And I'm like, look, it's a dad meme, but by the standards of, you know, labor union Twitter accounts, I'll take it. Yeah. 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 We take yeah. those. What we're saying is if you have a labor union Twitter account, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be Dune. Dune. Damn it. That's right. And now we, this is the back half of the, uh, the show where we go on for another hour about the class implications of the Dune series and also the Shrek series. That's uh, right. <laughs> and, and and then we deconstruct, you know, everyone's favorite working class comic, Cyanide and Happiness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One so of those three ones panel. that you forget is still around sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a three panel one, uh, vertical three panels. So the first one is, uh, is a guy in a, tie, a loose tie coming in to looking at a very disgruntled boss uh, saying, sorry, I'm late. There were global supply shortages. And the boss says, supply chain shortages made you two hours late for work. And then the worker with uh, clearly some stubble on his face uh, says, I just ran out of fucks to give. <laughs> I mean, that one just reminds me of the one that was like a text exchange between somebody and their boss. Yeah. And they, they like sent them this meme of a cat that was just captioned, normalize being late to work two hours late specifically. <laughs> That's right. And then the boss just responds, wait, what? And then, wait, where are you? <laughs> yeah. And then in good work stoppage fashion, we're going to end with a dunk on the labor board, which is actually, this is just That's a, right. this is kind of like a, a Sunday's comics uh, panel that probably may, it might be just repurposed. With, yeah, uh, it looks like some, Family some Circus good... if Family Circus was in a square format instead of a circular yeah. one. <laughs> I, I think it's from an actual AFL uh, publication. Oh, really? Like it's signed there, down there at the corner. Oh, oh sure enough. I do see that. Yeah, so you got your got your union bug right there. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> there's a there's a cop that is holding on to a, a dog on a leash, and then a robber with a bag full of something. And so the cop is labeled the labor board, just kind of nonchalantly looking at this robber. The uh, the puppy that is supposed to, I guess, be a guard dog, labeled the NLRA, yeah. and it's just yeah. a, just a cute little puppy. And then the bag that the robber is getting away with is unfair labor practices. So uh, this this does kind of this is work stoppage the meme. Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and it's also an important lesson for uh, I think Ben Garrison specifically that you only really need to label three or so things in a comic to make it coherent. <laughs> yeah, they don't have like the moon isn't for some reason also a face, and it's labeled yeah. like big government or something. OPEC. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The grass isn't labeled grass for no reason. SJW grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The leash is labeled the latest trend. Yeah. <laughs> that might just be Kelly memes, but <laughs> even well, Kelly is, I don't know. I like Kelly's a good. No, time. I know. <laughs> yeah. But, Cause Kelly's satire of, of Garrison's type of cartoon yeah, is yeah. just absolutely 
incredible. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to talk about that more in the Discord, which is where I will be inviting you right now at That's the end right. of the episode. We really appreciate you being a listener, and uh, if you support us on Patreon with five dollars, uh, really helps us out. And uh, you can always share our episodes, uh, give us reviews. If you want to get in the Discord, it's in the description of this episode. You can also just like try to find us on Facebook or something, and and it's there. Or you can message us <laughs> mm-hmm. or anything like that. Just you know, come hang out. Uh, you can also tweet at John uh, at Facebook Villain or at our Twitter at uh, Work Stoppage Pod. And then also listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table. And as always, we will see you next time. This labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity, Solidarity. forever. Solidarity, everybody. Uh, let's begin with a drum set. Listen for an explosive live sound. The snare should be crisp and the cymbals should ring. If they become harsh or flat, the speaker's high-frequency response is peaky or distorted. The snares, the snares, the snare should be crisp and the cymbals should ring. Snare should be crisp, snare should be crisp, symbols should ring. Let's begin, let's begin, let's begin.
still suffering with an old-fashioned push-pull dumpling with a ragged crossover and a three-stage baffle, please. The only possible way to hear this recording in its full beauty is with a Dingbat Special preamp number L534 with a bifurcated master singer no-slip disc. Then, you're making a frightful mistake. If you play it with any needle but an angel cast number 84, it's pure silk. Don't be a laughing stock. Get a Braunschweiger Buskirk circuit with a periwinkle one-ounce pickup arm and hear precisely the same notes your dog does. <laughs> 